I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about the business and culture of bookselling in the 21st century. Through conversations with bookstores, publishers, authors, and patrons, we'll explore how bookstores went from cautionary tale to a paradigm of small business success in the course of a decade. If you like what we're doing, help us out by subscribing and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Reviews help us reach more people. Thanks so much for helping us spread the word. Hey, everyone. This week, we're in Denver, home of Tattered Cover. This store is a special one for me. I spent a lot of time there while going to school in Colorado. I spoke to Len Vlejos, who owns the store along with his wife. The two of them took over the business from the original owner, and in many ways, what they did became a paradigm for successful small business succession. The tattered cover, the Lodo location in particular, is a quintessential bookstore in every sense of the word. Nooks, crannies, pockets of discovery at every turn, It single-handedly supports one of the country's most literate and educated regions. Len had amazing insights and was fantastic to talk to. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Here it is. Len, thanks so much for doing this. I got to say, I went to grad school in Denver, and I lived downtown, and I spent many, many days at the Lodo store. So this is going to be a fun one for me. Um, For people outside of Denver, can you summarize the store's history prior to your involvement with it? Uh, Absolutely. So Tattered Cover um, was founded as a 950-square-foot indie bookstore in 1971 by a man named Steve Kogel, and um, he sold it three years later to a young woman named Joyce Meskis, who over the course of the next 40 years really helped define the modern American independent bookstore. Um, uh, The store went through many iterations and locations, and today we have four locations. Uh, We have a large store in an old converted theater on Colfax Avenue in Denver. We have um, a store in lower downtown Denver, um, a tiny little satellite store across the street from that inside the refurbished refurbished Union Station train station, and then um, a store in the suburbs as well. And, And these are all you know, sizable indie bookstores where we do a ton of events, um, lots of comfortable seating. Two of them have coffee shops. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of that third place away from home and work where you want to just come and hang out. For sure. Is there an origin story for the name? You know, the name actually was started by um, the original owner, Steve Kogo, and I don't know where it comes from. I know that Joyce, who was really the person who kind of built Tattered Cup, Tattered Cover up over the years, never liked it. Um, uh, but it, she kind of inherited it and just sort of ran with it, and, and it became iconic in and of itself. But, you know, some people always think, is it a used bookstore because it's called Tattered Cover, and, and it's not. We sell, well, we just do sell some used books, but primarily new books. And how do you come into the story? What's your background, your nexus to books, and, and when do you enter the Tattered Cover timeline? I, uh, my wife and I both worked at, in, in bookstores as younger people. I, my first bookselling job was at the NYU bookstore. Um, I worked for Walden Books. I worked for some other indies. My wife managed a prominent indie in suburban New York. Um, and then we both, where we met, 
was um, we spent a lot of years, I spent 20 years at the American Booksellers Association, which is the big national trade group that represents stores like Tattered Cover. I started there in 1992 as a customer service rep and left uh, about 20 years later as the chief operating officer. And then I went to work for another small uh, book industry think tank. It was a group that really did standards, best practices, research on behalf of the whole supply chain. And, um, and we, my, so we were living in, in uh, Stanford, Connecticut. I was commuting three hours every day, wow. round trip to New York City. We had um, two young kids. We weren't in a great school district. We, we were on a busy cut through street, an expensive house. We said, you know, there's probably a better way to live than this. Well, when I had started... <laughs> At the American Booksellers Association in 92, Joyce Muskis, the owner of Tattered Cover, was president of that organization. So I'd known Joyce for more than 20 years. So I called her and said, you know, my wife and I are thinking of relocating out of New York. What kind of jobs are there for someone like me in Denver? And we talked for a while, and she said, well, do you have any interest in the stores? Because just by pure serendipity, I happened to call at a, to- a time when Joyce was starting to think about succession. And her, her children weren't really in or interested in the business. Um, the, the the senior staff here were all at a point in their careers where maybe they were more risk averse. And here I was, Joyce has known me for a long time and just out of the blue calling. And we talked for a whole lot of months and figured out a way to make it work. And we picked up with our family and moved cross country and, and landed in Denver. Oh, that's an amazing story. Had you ever been, had you ever spent any time in Colorado or Denver before that? So my wife had lived in and around Boulder um, after college for about five years as a, as, a, as a young adult, and I had visited many times because when you worked for um, the Booksellers Association, Tattered Cover was one of its most prominent members. So I had been to visit uh, various Tattered Cover locations over the years and, and always had a good feeling about Colorado, and, and uh, we thought it would be a nice place to raise kids, and it turned out to be true. The other thing is in 2014, when I was at that job in between ABA and Tattered Cover at the Book Industry Study Group, I published, I had my, my first young adult novel was published by a company called Egmont USA. I've since had two more and I'm under contract to write two more for Bloomsbury Publishing and McMillan Publishing. So I've also started a career as a, as a, a writer of novels for young adults, which is a whole other perspective on the world of books. Cool. Yeah, I know. I've noticed a trend where there's a lot of authors that are actually opening up their own um, independent bookstores, and there's so there's sort of this cross pollination going on. It's cool to see. Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, authors generally have a real affinity for um, locally owned indie bookstores because a lot of them, when they start out, that's you know who's going to pay attention to them and to really help launch a career. That happens much more in our kinds of stores than any other sort of bookselling outlet. For sure, it's like a circuit. You know, you work the circuit at the independent bookstores, and that's kind of how you build your your audience and your following. Exactly. Um, how have things overall? Uh, you don't have to grade yourself, but how have things overall been going under your stewardship? Um, thank you for making me not grade myself. Um, uh, you know, I think, I think things are going well, you know, uh, you know, kind of cover, you know, the, our, our first goal of coming in here was don't screw it up. I mean, your reaction, having gone to DU and, and spending time in our downtown stores, a lot of people's reaction. It's, it's sort of this, you know, really treasured iconic place and, and, you know, having been entrusted um, with that by Joyce and really handpicked by Joyce to succeed her was um, a, both a great honor and and certainly uh, an ob- a great obligation to make sure that we don't screw it up. That said, it was the same management team here for for 
for many, many years. And, and as Joyce would be the first to tell you, it was kind of rife for a fresh set of eyes. So we've made a lot of small behind-the-scenes changes, tweaks to how we do business and operationally, um, while trying to maintain what Countercover is known for, which is its, its sort of legendary customer service, um, commitment to, to free speech and reader's rights, and, uh, um, and, and a quality selection of books. We're also trying to now build on that and, and really... Um, hone in on the experience of coming here because we, we do more than 500 events a year. And while the majority are author events, we certainly do, you know, wine and coloring nights for adults. We do um, a big Harry Potter party every summer. We do story times for kids and lectures and book trivia. And so there's pretty much always something going on in one of our stores. And, and we're trying to really help our customers understand that too. Yeah. One of my own little stories of the place, it still exists to this day. I've lived in a bunch of different states and a bunch of different big cities. Um, it's still one of the few places where, well, actually one of the only places where I would walk in at like, let's say 11 o'clock in the morning. And before you know it, I would look down at my phone or my, my, my watch and it would be two o'clock. So it's that, that sanctity of a third place where you can truly get lost. Uh, the nooks and crannies, um, special place, that Lodo store. So, um, yeah, thank you for saying that. And we, we, we hope we hope that, that people are still having that feeling from what we can see and tell they are. So, what does a what does a typical day look like for you? You've got multiple locations. Um, you're kind of like captaining or co-captaining the ship with your wife. What is a typical day like for you? Yeah, so we had a long transition with Joyce. Um, we had a two year transition to, so that you know we could get to know the business from the inside out. This, we, you know, there wouldn't be tissue rejection from the staff or the community, and and it was really good. And, and as I said to Joyce, almost every day in those two years, you know, when do I get to sell books? Because when you know, with, with four locations and more than 150 employees, and and. Uh, um, just a very sizable, complex organism. There is either always a fire to put out, sometimes literally, or um, or there's something to deal with from an operational perspective. So, you know, whether it's 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 whether it's budgeting and dealing with banks, whether it's dealing with personnel issues. Um, we're launching a new loyalty program. We've just well, this isn't, I mean, I, I should be careful what I say because we haven't publicly announced it yet, but if you look at our website, it's got a new design and we're doing some things on the back end to make a new website. So there's there's sort of constant um, stuff to be done from that perspective. So I don't get to spend as much time on the floor with books and customers as I would like. I make a point of it at the holidays to do a whole lot of floor shifts and then when I can during the year, but it's, it's like any other business. There's just a lot of different pieces to run. My wife, um, since we got here, one of the things Joyce told us is that Tattered Cover hadn't really done much with area schools. So Kristen um, Gilligan, my wife, has gone and, and basically knocked on the door of every school in the metro area, and we're now putting authors in elementary, middle, and high schools two and four times a week. You know, two to four times a week, we're hosting in-store fundraisers for schools. We launched uh, a teen book festival. We're coming up on our third annual one this fall. She's launching a middle-grade book festival this May. Um, so we, we've launched teen advisory boards in two of our stores. So that's a whole part of our business that didn't even exist before, and we're, we're finding ourselves managing that, too. Um, I read that the original Barnes and Noble were modeled on, or was modeled on, on tattered cover. Do you have anything to say about that and what it, what it was about the operation that you think they wanted to scale? So it's true. Um, 
and really, what was really modeled, what they really modeled was store design. So when, in the 1980s, um, chain bookselling was predominantly a mall business. There were Walden Books and B. Dalton Bookstores in malls and strip centers across the country. In the early 90s, um, as, uh, after um, Borders went from being an indie store to being purchased by Kmart and merged with Walden Books, and Barnes and Noble, after they started to roll out the superstore concept, Barnes and Noble, it's in its first superstores, modeled their look and feel on tattered cover, which was green, you know, dark green carpeting, um, uh, uh, a lot of wood, brass fixtures, comfortable chairs all over the store. It really, it really was Joyce's design of a bookstore that they modeled. And I guess the only thing to say is that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So, for sure. Um, so you guys are kind of like a big, your own little mini chain in, in the, in the state of Colorado and in, in the city of Denver in particular, but you know, not being able to compete on price means that you have to have kind of this laser focus on experience and, and curation and discovery. What, even though you're a generalist bookstore, what are your thoughts on, on curation and how do you guys approach that and, and combining it with discovery? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it's absolutely true, right? So we we need we do need to focus on curation, and um, and what we need to make sure is that the the books that we've selected to carry in our stores are one reflective of what the commu- what we believe the community will want, um, and two introducing things to the community that they may not know existed that they will they will want. Um, we it, interestingly, so our first holiday season here was in 2015, and I took a look at our bestseller list, our top 20 books for each of our four locations. And so that's three in Denver and one in Littleton, Colorado. There were only three books on all four lists, meaning that each store is very unique in in the clientele it serves and in in the kind of customer that's coming in. And we need to buy accordingly for that. And, um, And we do. So, and we actually just made a change recently behind the scenes. We used to have our book buyers for for backlist books, books that are not new books, you know, like The Hobbit right. being a backlist book. So we we used to we used to buy by section. So we would have someone buying for science fiction for all the stores, and someone buying for business books for all the stores. We recently changed that. We're now buying by location. So our backlist buyers are buying by location because we really think that's where we can lend the most expertise is in really understanding the community and it's sort of literary needs and how we can best serve it. Cause our suburban store is wildly different than our downtown store. You know, sure. Denver in Colorado is just a very, um, culturally diverse state or in terms of, of the kinds of values that people have from one place to another. And we just want to make sure that we are providing the right experience for the right customer in the right location. But it's a big deal. That curation is part of what sets us apart. What sells um, really well that you're kind of surprised by? Um, you know, I don't know that anything is surprising me necessarily, but certainly kids' books, um, young adult and right now middle grade books in particular have just been ridiculously hot for the last several years and continue to be really, really hot. Um, you know, tattered cover being uh, our largest store is 18,000 square feet of selling space. And, um, so we can be a little more expansive in what we carry. So we have a really big poetry section, right? We have a pretty big philosophy section. And so we actually sell everything really all across the board, but it's still the bread and butter stuff, new fiction, new narrative nonfiction, um, 
that's going to move quickest out the door and, and, uh, and that people are really coming in and looking for. And, you know, if there's a hot book, um, we need to make sure, you know, we have it and, uh, um, people are going to buy it here just as much as they're going to buy it someplace else. So we talked a little bit about the Colfax location, Lodo, Aspen Grove. Is that where you said the, is that where the other stories? Aspen Grove is the Aspen. store in Littleton. Right. Yes. And then the Union Station. In, around the country, there's dozens of small bookstores that are that are becoming these these mini chains, if you will, for lack of a better term. San Francisco's got one, Seattle's got one, Brooklyn's got one. Uh, I think even two at this point. It, it just being on the ground and seeing this and kind of being around the business as as long as you have, what's happening? Is it just simply a function of a demand for more third places, or how are you guys pushing back against the narrative that the book business and book sales are down and this is not a viable business model? Uh, also a great question. So there, there's, a, there's a lot packed in there. Let, let me see if we're going to pack it. So, so the first part of, the, part of the narrative that you've heard a lot really since around 2010, 2011 is about the rise of digital books. And in fact, ebooks were on a... Um, a, a, a trajectory sort of straight up on the, on the chart, right? From, from 2008 when the Kindle launched until 2013 or so. And then ebooks hit a wall. Um, and ebook sales have, have flattened out and actually have been retreating ever since. Not that ebooks are going away, they're not, but they've proven a certain kind of utility. And, and what ebooks have replaced is the mass market or, or pocketbook form of book. You know, the kind of book you would see at a spinner rack in a supermarket. So romance novels, some other genre, um, genre fiction, things that maybe you don't want in your collection at home or for the reader who consumes so much. So that part of the, you know, and plus ebooks also expanded the business a little bit too. But so print books over that period of time, hardcover books and trade paperback, the larger format paperback books, have held their own. Um, so that's the first part of the narrative that I think a lot of people presume oh, everything's going digital, but that's turned out to be at least so far a false narrative because print and digital are coexisting in a way that film and television or radio and television. It's totally yeah. leveled out in the last few years for sure. Yeah, leveled out and even actually retreated a little bit. The, 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 the second piece of the narrative um, is that there was a massive overexpansion of chain bookstores throughout the 1990s. So there was a huge expansion of, of Barnes & Noble superstores and Border superstores while they held on to their mall stores, their Walden Books and their B. Dalton stores. There was an expansion of the Books a Million. And what happened is you had a, a very oversaturated market where there was a lot more retail space. Retail space was growing at a much faster pace than, than the overall pie. So it was getting carved up more and more. And what you've seen over the last, you know, five to 10 years is kind of a market correction, if you will. You know, Borders didn't survive. Barnes & Noble has, um, is not really growing. Um, the, the mall business went away just about completely. So what happened is indies were, you know, and, and there was a thinning of, of the indies too, but the indies who survived are now finding themselves in markets where maybe there are underserved pockets of those communities, right? So the bookstore in Brooklyn um, saw that uh, Jersey City was a place that was, its, de it, its demography was changing. There wasn't really a new bookstore in neighboring Hoboken. And here were a lot of people who were suddenly couldn't afford Brooklyn or Manhattan moving to Jersey City, needed a bookstore. Makes sense to, to open a bookstore there, right? right. Book Sync in California that you referenced, 
is always seeing different, you know, sort of fluctuations in the market up and down the peninsula where there are, are places to open. It's, it's, so it's, it's, it's just really being opportunistic and seeing a place where there's an underserved market and a need because of this sort of larger a larger market correction. All that said, we're all still facing immense pressures from e-commerce, people, you know, buying print books online and, and from rising operational costs. So it's still not an easy go, but um, and it's still nobody in this business is getting rich. We're all doing it because we love it. But it, there's definitely been sort of a moment of renaissance. Well said. I've noticed there's also this thing uh, at airports now. There's a, there's several stores that have these partnerships. I don't know, maybe you, you'll explain it to me in a second, but there's these, I guess, co-branding licensing deals with, with um, Hudson is one, one company I've seen. Um, you guys have one as well in Denver, right? We do. We, we have a, um, a, a partnership with Hudson where there are we have a tattered, a, a tattered cover branded location in each terminal at Denver International Airport. And um, the, the basics of the relationship... Well, I, I was just going to say, uh, how did Hudson get involved in this? And uh, I understand it from a business standpoint, why, why do it? But I'm just kind of curious about how this became a thing uh, and when it became a thing. I think it became... I'm not sure when it became... We were not first. Um, but I think it became a thing because a lot of airports or the municipal authority that manages the airports wanted the airport to reflect the community. So they were really interested in local brands. And, um, you know, there's, there's two ways to do that. One is you invite the local brand in to run a business, and the other is you take someone who's got experience in all of the, the, the peculiarities of and details of working in an airport environment who has that experience to partner with a local brand. So I think that's what Hudson has done. You know, there are a number of instances where Hudson partners with, I think there's a book soup in, in, in LAX. I think there's a books and books in the Miami airport, the Austin airport as a book people. So it's, it's, um, it's a, I'm not sure where the model started, but it's, it's a really good model. And I will say, you know, Hudson as a partner, has been fantastic because any they're super responsive. If, if we think they're not representing our brand the way it needs to, they make they'll make changes and they'll make them quickly. And um, they're very protective of our brand on our behalf. So it's it's a really healthy relationship that that benefits both sides. So from a like an operational standpoint, they run the day to day of the. That's correct. We we don't hire the staff and we don't buy the merchandise. We're, we're, we're kind of monitoring what they do to make sure their brand, that their service, their curation, their selection, their ad- administration of our brand meets our standards. Got it. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah. Now, do you guys, I don't know if you can say this or not, but uh, and it's okay if you can't, I understand, but do you have any plans to extend beyond Denver or to other pockets of Denver? Is that something you're thinking about? We, we are always um, interested in finding, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, those underserved markets, and Denver is such a boom town, which you know, there's something like 100 people a day moving into Denver Metro that we're trying to identify. You know, we're always looking to see if we can identify those places that we think would benefit from our presence and that we would benefit from being there. Um, nothing to announce yet, just to say that we're always looking. Um, put your... Uh advice cap or your, your dad cap on for a second. And, and tell me what you would say to somebody who wants to open a bookstore today that doesn't have an established brand that doesn't have a really good real estate corner. Uh, how can they make it work? What are a couple of things they have to think about or be doing to, to make it sustainable and, and effective? 
So the first thing I'd say is, is if you're going to get into this business, know that you're, you're, you're doing this for a lifestyle choice and, and really for the mission of what independent bookstores represent. And that if you're doing it, um, because you have some money to invest and you want to grow that investment, probably look somewhere else. You know, so that's the first thing I would say is, is make sure someone's motivation is correct. Presuming it is, you know, my, my advice would be to just do your homework. Um, understand who else is in the market, who else is selling into the market. You know, the old adage about the three most important things in retail being location, location, location is still true. And make sure that you are getting the right location. Absolutely get data from the American Booksellers Association on what a profit and loss statement for an average independent bookstore looks like so you know what you can afford to pay in rent. Um, you know, that you have, a, you should have a certain occupancy cost and project it against a certain dollars per square foot that you think will work. I would say don't open a 500 square foot store. Try and, try and make sure you have the fortitude to be opening a 2,000 square foot store because there's a, a point at which a store is small enough, it's much harder for it to survive because of the economics of our business. And, and one of the, the strange things about there there's a couple of strange things about the retail book business that are different than any other business. The first thing is our product is fully returnable to the publisher for credit. So we order 100 copies of a new John Grisham novel, we sell 70, we can return 30 for credit to that publisher, which is great. Balance that with the publisher is printing the price on the book. So if that new John Grisham novel is $30, that's a ceiling. And I can't sell that book for more than $30 because the publisher has set the price. So when we have something like, in, like we do in Colorado with a mandated rise in the minimum wage, and I've got to, I've got to, you know, have to pay more money like every other retailer does. I'm not like a coffee shop where I can just put a quarter on the cup of every cup of coffee and pass that cost on to my customer. I've got to figure out how to absorb that cost. So that's, if I was opening a bookstore from scratch, I'd tell somebody to look at the dollar, the economics of it, and make sure you understand all of those pieces of it. Um, cause, because as much as we are in this business for the passion, you do need to be able to survive and be profitable to, to support all those other things you want to do, if that makes sense. It 100% does. Um Amazon is opening physical stores. They've got like 15 now and, and counting. What do you think of that? Do you even think about them at all at this point? So, yeah, of course we do. They're, they're another competitor. but I, so And they are opening one confirmed store in Metro Denver, Lone Tree, Colorado. And there's a rumored second location, uh, unconfirmed, uh, that might be coming as well. None of which surprised us. You know, we are one of the fastest growing cities in the country. We are the second highest educated state in the country. We're always in the top 10 most literary cities in the country. We're, we're a market that makes sense for that. That said, having been in the Amazon store on Columbus Avenue, Columbus Circle in New York City, it's a very different experience, right? You know, almost everything in the store is face out. Um, the whole pricing structure is a little different, a little weird. And the staff who worked there, which, while attentive and helpful, were really interested in trying to get people to become Prime members. And, and I think their motives for operating a bookstore are probably different than my motives for operating a bookstore. So the, while it's not quite apples and oranges, someone will have a discretionary dollar to spend on books and go to one or the other. The experience is different enough that it's not something I'm super worried about. Um, if they open 10 stores in Denver, I'll worry more. But I think we do what we do so well. Um, we have such an interesting 
um, eclectic and sometimes powerful event schedule that I think we're going to just continue to, to, to draw customers here. Sure. Yeah. I'm noticing that across the board, the events calendar, the programming is the secret sauce, if you will. That's what gets people, um, book buyers and non-book buyers alike, when you can meld them together the way that your events do. Um, that's, that's where the good stuff happens. Yeah. We had a whole lot of first time customers when we had Bruce Springsteen here. You know, there were a lot of people who probably hadn't been to town recover before and, uh, um, who were here that day, and, and boy, were they happy. And I'm sure we've had a lot of those folks come back. I'm sure the so. line was snaked across all the different shelves. Um, what are some of the ways... And, and around the block, And actually. around the block, yeah. <laughs> um, what What are some of the ways you guys are... You think about technology or you leverage technology to help you grow and scale? Um, and, and where I'm going with this is like uh, the things like the Libro FM partnership, um, broadcasting events online, streaming, stuff like that. What's your, what's your thought, what's your philosophy on it and what's your approach? So, you know, one of the challenges of being an independent business is, is, is like any independent business, not just bookstores, but we tend to be undercapitalized. So sometimes um, technology is a place that we can struggle with more as a channel than, than maybe a, a larger corporate um, sort of behemoth because they're, they're going to be funded by the public markets. That said, I think it's really important, right? So we actually, in the last, last year, last February, 2017, we, um, replaced our old Unix based sort of antiquated point of sale inventory control system with a new state of the art cloud based system. So, um, to make our backend systems much more modern and much more fluid, it wasn't without its pain, you know, doing an inputting a, putting a new computer system in place is, is, is not, it's very much like surgery and especially getting the people to buy in. Yeah. And there's that piece of it too. Um, but along on that, that certainly helps us. Um, we do, uh, we do have a website, uh, that we sell on. It's not a huge part of our business, but it's an important part of our business. Our customers use that to see if we have a book in stock, to see what events we have coming up. So we are, as I mentioned earlier, we've quietly launched a new front end for that. And in, you know, mid to late April, we'll do a public announcement because we're making a lot of changes on the back end for that as well. So I think being able to, to do that. And then, and then the last piece for us, you know, we, we've experimented a little bit with sort of podcasts and, um, or rather, you know, you know, somebody recording offer visits and, and creating podcasts of them later. And while I think that's interesting, I'm not so sure it's, it's a huge deal for us. I'm, I'm a little bit interested in what Books and Books in Miami does and that they live stream events. And I'm kind of curious to, to know more about that. Um, but what we do is that we have a dedicated personnel who manages our social media. So we're very active on Instagram, uh, on Twitter, and on Facebook, um, you know, communicating with our customers. And it's not just promotional. It really is an opportunity to interact with our customers, to provide them sort of fun, engaging content, to hear from them. So I, I think those things, which are, you know, they're not new at this point, but, you know, from book selling 20 years ago, it's a pretty significant change in that you need to be communicating with customers in all kinds of ways sort of all all the time. Um, so I would say technology is hugely important to what we do. But at the end of the day, what we really want is someone to come in the store and, and, and that we can either connect her with a book she's looking for or connect her with an offer she's hoping to see or just give her a place to sit down and work on her laptop for a little while. 
I talked to Books and Books and a couple of other stores and uh, Politics and Pros, I know you're familiar with as well. They do, they actually have a podcast where they, uh, like you said, they take their author events and they basically podcastify them, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think the general thesis on all of it is just kind of trying to find ways to be top of mind and just kind of ingratiate yourself with a different customer base. It's more about, it's more about sort of just being, spreading yourself over the culture sandwich, if you will. Absolutely. And, and, and uh, again, for all of us, the challenge is, do we, we're one of the danger of spreading ourselves too thin, right? That, that, you know, so if, if I would, if I, I would, for us, I would make, I want to make sure that we are really well represented on social media and that, and let's say we're, we're really pitching hard to get the right event calendar to make sure that we've got authors, people who really want to see and that are going to come out in droves to see, I'd rather put the extra resources that I can into that than in, for us, for right now, into a podcast. But I'm really, at Politics and Prose and Books and Books are two of my favorite bookstores in the country. And in fact, Politics and Prose is a similar story because it was a married couple who bought that store from a, a longtime iconic owner. Yeah. And, and so, so Kristen and I reached out to Brad and Liz at Politics and Prose as soon as we announced the tiger cover deal, and, we, and I, I had known them in my from my ABA days, and we, you know, took them out to dinner to try and you know get advice on how they were, you know, settling into their business, and and um, and so we we talk to those folks all the time, and we watch what they do, and we learn from them, and frankly, we steal from them, and they steal from us, and and that you know that one of the nice things funny. about the. I don't think that's true in other businesses as much as indie bookstores. We are so collegial and and so in this together that we are happy to share ideas with one another and share intelligence, and and we do it all the time. And um and so you know if if we see that books and books has a model of live streaming that would work for us, we would jump on it in a heartbeat. You know, it's interesting. You talked about the succession plans. This is at least the third incident that I've been uh, privy to in terms of conversations where I've seen that there's been this plan where the previous owner has sought inward within the community of booksellers to try to prop this up and make it go to the next generation. And it's just a very cool, I, I use the word innovation because that's kind of how I see it. But Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's neat to see too. And, and again, I think a part of that is because the younger people who are attracted to this business are also here because they have a passion for it. Because, you know, we have some incredibly brilliant staff who could definitely make more money if they went to work someplace else, but they're here because of, of sort of the, the personal reward they feel and job satisfaction and lifestyle of working in a bookstore. And, 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 and it is from that group that springs the next generation. Um, one more question, and then I want to do a lightning round, which is just a bunch of quick yes or no's, or if you want to deep dive, feel yeah. free. Sure. We're talking about innovation. Is there an innovation or thing nobody's doing in the business right now? Um, you know, I, sort of um, more um, maybe a wonky answer. Is, you know, one of the great challenges for independent book retail, but I think all independent retail, are, is technology um, and its backroom systems, and it's your inventory system and your point of sale system. I think the the world is rife and ready for an open source point of sale inventory control system that costs can be shared and really minimal across, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of retailers and the system can be made customizable. Technology has become so democratized. We should be able to do that and create some really smart, um, uses for back-end technology, for data acquisition, data management, data mining in an open source environment, which is very much sort of in our ethos anyway. So I, I would love to see somebody get into sort of some open source 
technology development to support indie, indie retail. Love it. What does your business look like in five years? Um, you know, in five years, uh, it, it, that used to feel like a short time. Right now, it feels like an eternity. So I think in, in five years, we're doing a lot more of the same, but we're doing more things to make our customers more sticky to us. Um, hopefully, we're in uh, maybe a new location or two in the next five years, um, and that maybe we're finding ways to be closer to our customer outside the store as well. Do you think print will always exist? Yes. I think print will always, you know, always is a long time. We may be a technological innovation away from that, but from what I see right now, yes. And what are you reading at the moment? Um, well, right now I am, so there's a, uh, you know the industry, so you're probably well aware of Book Expo America, but, um, or just Book Expo now. Book Expo is the big industry confab every uh, early June in New York, and I'm the moderator for the Young Adult Buzz panel, so I have five young adult novels to read for that. So I'm, I'm reading advanced readers' copies of a, a, number, a number of novels. Right now, it's a book called Darius the Great, and I'm embarrassed. I'm not remembering the author's name, but I'm really enjoying the book. Um, so I'm, I'm reading for the YA Buzz panel right now. And I'm listening to Via Libro, Via Libro FM, which you mentioned earlier, um, the Soul of an Octopus, which is a nonfiction book about um, this uh, journalist who tries to really understand and, and connect with the consciousness of what is probably the most alien, intelligent life form on this planet, alien to us. Sounds cool. Do um, you listen to a lot of audiobooks? I do. I have is, a, it, is, I it a 50, is it a 50-50 split? Or... You know, it, it, I'm so busy because I'm, I have a writing career. I have two small kids in the bookstores. I don't have, have, have enough time to read. So it probably, it didn't used to be a 50-50 split, but it probably is a 50-50 split now. Um, are there any writers out there that you'd like to mention that you think should be getting more attention? Um, I, boy, that's, that's a long list on the young adult side. Um, you know, there are writers who I really admire, um, who are colleagues in the young adult world, some of whom would get lots of attention, like Jason Reynolds is maybe the best writer I know. Um, Andrew Smith, uh, I'm a kind of fanboy of Andrew. He's got a, a book coming out this fall. Jessica Brody, she, she wrote a book last year. The whole thing was set in the Denver International Airport. She's a tremendous writer of young adult. On the adult side, again, I mean, probably getting plenty of attention, but I'm, I'm a David Mitchell fanboy. Um, and I, I don't know when his next book is, but I'm eagerly awaiting it. Um, do you guys play music in the store? I forget. And if, if so, what's on the store soundtrack right now? We don't, but we're talking about bringing it back, especially to our, our, our Aspen Grove store in the suburbs, because we had a coffee shop there and we took it out. And without the ambient noise of the coffee shop, it's a little too quiet. Ah, so okay. we're just having a conversation now. Um, and, you know, we would give the staff a certain amount of control over that. I probably don't want death metal in the store. Um, right. Uh, and I probably don't want opera in the store either. But, you know, may, maybe we've a, got... You a know, happy medium in, in the middle. So, yeah. Right. Uh, complete the sentence for me. A couple more after this. Uh, Denver is. Denver is the coolest place in America. I am so happy we moved here. Um, people are nice. The weather's fantastic. Um, it's just a very chill environment. You're minutes away from any kind of fun outdoor stuff, but we're a big enough city that we get any kind of entertainment or sports that you could imagine. So it's the coolest place in America. What book have you recommended the most over the years to people? 
Uh, that's a very hard question also. Over recent years, probably Ready Player One. Soon to be, or it probably already is out, is, right, the movie. Is, yeah. is, yes, okay. we saw the movie over the weekend. The movie's, the movie's good. Um, the book is, as it always is, is mm-hmm. infinitely better. Right. Um, and last but not least, um, I ask everybody this. Just, it's, I just love to hear the answers from booksellers across America. What's in your ideal sandwich? Um, turkey. No, we're going to change that up. Uh, rare roast beef. Swiss cheese, lettuce, tomato, salt, pepper, Russian dressing, extra Russian dressing on a roll. Len, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for participating in the series, and you guys are doing awesome things in Denver, and next time I'm in town, I'll come by and, and try and say hi if you're around. I, we're looking, looking forward to hearing them. I'm thrilled that you're doing this, and, and good luck with it, and thanks, thanks for including us. I'm Vic Singh, and you've been listening to Book Stories. Book Stories is produced by Alternate Thursdays in Los Angeles. 